0: Already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits.
1: Hey, BTB buddies. I'm excited about this one. I've got Andy Huggins on the show today. Andy has been doing stand-up comedy for 45 years and has been from Houston to L.A. and back to Houston again. Andy and I talked about his comedy career and how that was the only thing he was going to be able to do. He was born to be a stand-up comedian. But we also talked about, and this is most important, is his comedy special Kickstarter called the Andy Huggins Comedy Special Kickstarter that Slade Ham is putting together for him to get his own comedy special And have it professionally filmed and have something that is a nice body of work from Andy. This is real easy to donate to. You can Google Andy Huggins Kickstarter, or you can go to Kickstarter and type in Andy Huggins, or you can very easily go to the BTBPC forward slash Andy in order to donate to this looks like he's got under five thousand dollars to go but the deadline is may 2nd so we've just got a few days to go to get this funded hope you can give andy a little bit of love and i hope you enjoy this interview it's a good one it's andy huggins andy how are you
2: very well scott an afternoon to one and all
1: yeah it's really great to have you on the show i you know like a lot of other people uh i discovered you through america's got talent and then uh i got to uh uh watch a few of your um older videos that are online and some of some of your current stuff and i i like your style i like your comedy and i'm really pleased to have you on
2: well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to our uh, conversation.
1: Now, I want to go to the America's Got Talent. Let's let's take care of that first, because uh, I think that's kind of an interesting story on how you got there. Can you um, just kind of give me the series of events that happened that got you on America's Got Talent?
2: What happened, one of their producers and the show must have, and I'm not exaggerating. They must have eight dozen producers. Yeah. One was online and ran across a, uh, tape of mine, uh, that I had, uh, of a performance I had given in, um, Dallas, I guess it was, I was, pr- uh, participating in a contest. He saw it, liked it. And I'm told quite by coincidence, he called a club owner in Houston and asked, <laughs> Hey, who, who, who would be good for our show? And he mentioned my name. So he, uh, he uh, discovered me uh, this, uh, almost simultaneously. Uh-huh. But it was the tape of the show. Yeah, uh, He liked uh, a lot of the, uh, I would say, sexually oriented material. I mean, it's not raunchy sexy, but right. it's talking about women and sex and relationships. He got a kick out of that. Uh, at the time, I guess I was 68 years old. He uh-huh. thought it was a funny contrast. So that's what attracted him.
1: That's, that's great. So from the process of them saying, Hey, Andy, we'd like for you to be on the show to actually getting on stage. What, what do you have to go through to make that happen?
2: So many conversations again with different producers. uh, They, they, they're real interested in backstories Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, I didn't give them an interesting backstory and if anybody's listening that is ever has a chance to do something like that, give them a backstory and really emphasize it, Yeah. Uh, you know, pick some aspect of your life and just keep pounding on that. till that becomes the backstory. I didn't do that. And so they were all over the place when they finally uh, taped something. Uh, but so many conversations and, and, and si- they sent me a, uh, a uh, contract that was just full of a lot of legalese that I didn't understand, and quit reading after about the second paragraph. But you have to go through that. It, it, it's a, it's not really a difficult process in that it's difficult to do, mm-hmm. but it just yeah. there's just so much crap, and uh, uh, but you get through it, and next thing you know, they uh, have uh, uh, given you a plane ticket out there.
1: Yeah, and what happened after your appearance?
2: Well, uh, bookings went up uh-huh. and the pay went up, yeah. <laughs> I was on, uh, you know, uh, and that's probably the best a comic. I don't know that a comic, in fact, I know a comic's never won that contest, mm-hmm. but they get to the third round, fourth round, wherever. And I think that's the best thing that results from uh, a comic appearing on that show is, uh, is, uh, more work. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> you're nationally known now. Yeah. So uh, th- that, that was the, uh, that was the uh, uh, what occurred for me. That uh, more work, more pay.
1: Right, right.
2: I'm all for that.
1: <laughs> well, I'm I'm really glad that that happened for you. Now, let's. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about the AGT thing a little bit, but I really want to get into your start in comedy and the things that you've done along the way that have, uh, that, that have been good for your career and maybe some of the mistakes you've made, uh, so that younger comics can learn from you. And from what I understand you in the Houston area now are, um, you've got a lot of younger comics that you kind of take under your wing and you help out. So this, this will be a broadcast version of you talking to, uh, uh, not so younger comic, uh, given advice. So I think that'll work out pretty well. So what was it that brought you to stand up comedy to start with?
2: Um, comedy when, ever since I was a kid and I mean like pre pre Mm preteen, I was absolutely fascinated by comedy situation, comedies and stand up, uh, comedy. Now I was born in 1950, uh, mid fifties, late fifties, The only time you ever saw stand-up comedy was on the Ed Sullivan show. Uh Uh, But there were, of course, sitcoms all over the place. And I would watch those. I would watch those. I would watch sitcoms I didn't find funny. But it was comedy. Uh So I was absolutely fascinated uh, uh, by it. Uh, So that's where it started was just, I honestly got to think that stand-up comedy is what, I was put on this earth to do, mm-hmm. you know, you hear a lot of comics talk about uh, and it absolutely true and understandable, difficult childhoods for this reason and that. And for those reasons, they got into comedy to make people laugh at it, and all that is legitimate. That was never the case with me. The case with me was I just immediately and was always fascinated by comedy. Uh-huh. And that's why I do it. And happily, thank God. Yeah. I have a talent for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and how old were you when you got on stage the first time to do stand-up?
2: Oh, I uh, again, uh, I grew up in a variety of places, but in Virginia uh, is where I graduated high school. There still wasn't anywhere to do Uh stand-up. So um, I guess maybe I was 26, 27 years old, a friend who uh, performed at a coffee house in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I lived, made me go on stage between a folk singer one night because i'm always talking about i'm going to do stand up i going but i wasn't doing anything about it and uh bill i think was his name in fact i know that was his name got tired of hearing me talk about it and he said okay look put up or shut up time there's a folk singer upstairs at this uh, restaurant you're going to do write some jokes and you're going to go on in uh in between the, uh, the folks in your set. So that's the first time This probably, uh, 1977. I was 27 years old.
1: Uh, huh. now where you're at now, you definitely have a wealth of material because you've got your age to work with. You've, you've got years of knowledge. What was your act like when you first started when you were 26 and 27 years old?
2: Uh, it was mostly, mostly wordplay. Okay. Mostly wordplay. You know, the very first jokes focused on the fact that, uh, uh, uh I was thin, a lot of thin jokes and then mm-hmm. a lot of self deprecating jokes, which I still do, but it's different now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but just a lot of wordplay, just silly wordplay, uh-huh. clever wordplay, wordplay that got okay last, but, uh, you know, wordplay, as clever and uh, as it may be, it ha- wordplay has no depth. It has no emotional depth. Uh-huh. So they're not great laughs. Right. They're appreciative laughs, but uh, they're not great laughs. Yeah. But that's mostly what it was. Uh-huh. It was uh, and they were good because I got laughs, you know, and it got me to be a regular at the comedy store when I went out to Los Angeles. So it was that good. Uh-huh. But looking back on it, I, I, and I bet every stand up of any, uh, age has this same reaction. When I look back, I wonder how the hell did I get any laughs? Yeah. (laughs) This this is crap. This is awful. Yeah. And I wasn't that good a performer. I know I wasn't that good a performer. Yeah. Somehow I got through. I think basically, uh, what I had going for me in the beginning was that I'm just a funny guy. Yeah. And I think that came through to the audience. So that helped a little bit. Uh Okay. I just in my demeanor and personality and presence, Audience thought, okay, this is a funny guy, right? And you know, sometimes I disabused him of that notion after <laughs> uh-huh. they listened to me for a while. But I always started off in pretty good shape.
1: Yeah, and uh, you talked about your presence. That's one of the things I've noticed. I haven't seen you live, but one of the things I noticed about your appearance on America's Got Talent and, and the other videos I watched of you, you you are fairly unique in that in that you're. Um, you're not what I would call a low energy type comic. You are just a conversation, more of a conversational type comic. And it seems like everything that you say is something that you just thought up when you got on stage. So it seems fresh, even though I know you've probably worked hard on it. So I I think that's probably one of the reasons why people took to you early on.
2: Well, I, I, that's just experience and, 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 And you know, an instinct for doing stand up comedy. I have, I I wasn't a you know, a boy, uh, uh, prodigy when I first started out, Uh or even a 27 year old prodigy, but I did have and do have good instincts for comedy, yeah. And part of that is performing uh, jokes that I've done a hundred times, like I'm doing them for the first time, yeah, right. That's just instinct and, uh, experience and it's good writing too. You have to phrase it in a way that you have to phrase the jokes in a way that are, are fresh Uh and, you know, fun to do. Right. I tell you what, I enjoy my act a lot. Uh, Uh, and so I have fun doing it. And I think that comes across. I'm real pleased with uh, the fact that I do stand up comedy and that I can write jokes. Yeah. So, Yeah. uh, It really helps when you
1: like your own stuff.
2: It does. I mean, (laughs) as egotistical as that may seem, I I don't, you know, I've heard comics talk about, Oh, I, I hate doing that bit.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. And I don't know how, and they may be exaggerating a bit, uh, you know, just kind of a a, a phony uh, cynicism Mm -hmm. about their own act, but geez, I don't know how you perform something. That you don't. Now, I'm not saying every line I ever wrote is uh, brilliant, but every line I wrote I like. Mm-hmm. I've never done a line on stage that I didn't like. Right. Uh, there have been plenty I probably should have disliked, yeah. given <laughs> given the result, which is to say, no laughs. Right. I, there are probably some lines I disliked in retrospect. Uh-huh. I go back and go, what, like I was just saying, what the <laughs> hell was I thinking? But uh, for the most part, I enjoy being a stand up. I think that comes across uh-huh. I'm pleased as a uh, pleased as punch to be a stand-up.
1: Yeah. So what was it that propelled the decision for you to go to LA and start working in the comedy store?
2: Well, the comedy store specifically was, was because, and this is the late seventies, I would hear that, that club mentioned every time a comic was on, uh, uh, the Tonight Show mm-hmm. or the Merv Griffin Show or the Dinah Shore Show or the Mike Douglas Show. Uh, so that was uh, that was going to be Mecca for me. And, it, you know, at some point I had, like I said, at 27 years old, I had never had a career in anything. Mm-hmm. I had nothing I wanted to do other than stand up. And so it just got to the point where, you know, I, I had to do something. I, at 27 years old, I had to do something uh, with my life. Trying to say, well, I'm going to do stand-up comedy. Where do I go? New York was a possibility. Uh, Los Angeles was a possibility. And like I said, the fact that I uh, I had been hearing about the Comedy Store for several years, uh, I thought, well, okay, then it's the Comedy Store.
1: Uh huh. That's great. So-, so
2: I went out to Los Angeles with what I thought was a lot of money, and it turned out <laughs> not to be a lot of money. Having I didn't know a soul. Uh, I, I, I had no plan other uh, than I knew there was an open mic uh, potluck, they called it, at the Comedy Store on Monday. That was my plan. Uh-huh. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly from Virginia to Los Angeles, not knowing anybody, and do an open mic at the Comedy Store. I, I, I swear to you, talking about it now, whenever I think about it, I get the shivers, the stupidest. Uh, I, I can't tell you how blessed I was that that actually worked. Uh-huh. If anybody's li- uh, listening, thinking about, uh, getting into stand-up, don't do what I did. <laughs> have a better plan, have some money, uh, know somebody when you go out there. So uh, you have at least a mini support group. Uh-huh. Don't do what I did. I can't tell you. I, I, I'm not exaggerating when I think about it as I'm speaking about it. I, I shiver it, it was just, it, it required a degree of, of luck, uh, an amount of blessing uh-huh. that you just can't count on.
1: You know, it really, almost everybody I've talked to that has been able to get anywhere and stand up and be able to make a living from it, you, you almost have to have those nerves of steel and you have to make decisions like that once in a while that yeah. are really kind of, you're teetering on the edge of a cliff, but if you don't make that decision, you're still going to be working a day job and doing uh, open mics and showcases.
2: Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And then, you know, you, you, that's the mind. Then you get out there and you have good nights on stage. And there's some nights that uh, are just absolutely awful. Uh, I mean, absolutely awful. And you know, you don't have anybody, a support group, really, you're running out of money. You don't have a, but, but, okay, I'm going to get up the next night. Mm -hmm. So that's more nerves of steel. Or just, just not just a determination, but an absolute belief that this is what you ought to be doing, like I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even when it went bad, it and it went bad a lot, a lot of times. Oh, my. (laughs) Oh, my. Um, uh, It goes bad sometimes now, and I know what I'm doing. Uh-huh. So imagine how often it went bad when I didn't know what uh-huh. I was doing. Uh, and I wasn't as good a writer as I am now. Uh, but you know, you just you, you just if if this is what you're meant to be doing, you just get back up there. Uh-huh. And you know, if you feel comfortable on stage, then get back up on there.
1: Right, right. Now, when you had those really bad sets and you know you've taken you've taken a big leap to go there. How did you deal with that as a young man coming off stage and you, you just totally bombed?
2: Uh, well, again, I wouldn't recommend it. Or actually, actually maybe it is the right way. Uh, there was no plan B. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know. David Mamet, uh, a great playwright, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a terrific book for actors called uh, uh, True and False. It's okay. Terrific! I read it a bunch of times and there's some lessons in there that apply to if you're going to be stand-up. And one of them is that, you know, if you have his idea was if you have a backup plan, you're going to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. You're going to fall back on it. So, you know, his advice to actors was just to leap in there and do it. If you, if you have some sort of uh plan B, then you're going to, you're going to fall back on plan B at some point because, at, and you know, he's talking about acting, but stand up, it's so tough. And there's plenty of opportunities after bombing yet again.
0: Uh-huh. Yet
2: again. Every, <laughs> every damn night this week, Andy. Every damn night you bombed. Well, what am I gonna do otherwise? Right. I'm gonna get back up there next week. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully do better.
1: I've got no uh plan B. Yeah, the the no plan B is uh is definitely interesting. I, I don't know if I could ever do that myself, but you know, more power to those that can. So I've yeah. got just FYI, I've got a uh, former guest and probably somebody, you know, Lou deck chiming in on oh, the, I know Lou on well. ch- oh. he was
2: there at the be- beginning of my career. Hey Lou.
1: Yeah. Lou, Lou, Lou's become a friend of mine. He said to ask you about the Westwood comedy store. The,
2: the, the what? The
1: Westwood comedy store. Oh, Westwood. Westwood. Yeah. Westwood. yeah.
2: yeah uh, for a while, there were two comedy stores, one on uh sunset, one at, uh, 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 Westwood, and that's mostly where I performed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it, you know, the real heavy hitters are on, uh, uh, were up at sunset. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while I'd get a spot at sunset, but mostly I was at Westwood, mostly kind of like triple A ball. Yeah. <laughs> which is how I think of it triple A. Uh, uh, maybe somewhere between triple A and the majors because there, you know, a lot of, A lot of heavy hitters uh, would show up at Westwood also, Uh but uh, uh, for the most part, it was uh, comics like me still trying to figure it out.
1: Now, one of the things that I know, I've talked to quite a few people that that were at the comedy store that were there when you were there, and um, it it was such a magical mix because it was incredibly competitive first, I mean, you guys were all competing against each other, and yet you guys all made bonds and friendships that have really lasted forever. How do you think something like that can happen? And do you think things like that can happen today?
2: Uh, They're happening today. They are happening. I'm here in Houston, Texas. Uh, I I, I span about four generations of Houston comics, a generation being about 10 years now. Mm -hmm. Not twenty, but about <laughs> about forty years of worth of, and you know, every once in a while a different group comes along. But there's always been, you know, within that group, bonding and a little bit of competitiveness. Uh, it's hard to avoid not, you know, falling into an attitude of uh, how come he's working and I'm not, mm-hmm. how come she's getting gigs and I'm not. I'm funnier than them. So you get in that, even with people that you're quite fond of, even people that you uh, admire as comics, but still you're thinking I'm as good as they are.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so, you know, it's just the nature of the business. It's the nature of being a stand standup. Um, and it's the nature of how uh, any comedy community uh, develops. Uh, there, there is that interesting mix of bonding and competitiveness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it can be, uh, I guess it can lead to some uh, difficult moments.
0: Yeah. Time yeah. to time,
2: if you, get, if you get a little too uh, competitive with uh, somebody that's a good friend. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the competitiveness maybe gets the better of you on occasion.
1: Right, right. So
2: it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. And, you know, if you're a stand-up comic, you know what? You're you you, you you're by yourself. Ultimately, you're by yourself. Uh-huh. And, you know, any bonding Pretty much false to you to 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 bring into being, and the competitive. You you know, you're as competitive as you choose to be.
1: Right, right. So uh, so being as as invested as you were into your stand up career and being out there. In LA, what did you do as far as developing an act? So, from writing to performing, what you know, what what did you do to get to that first good ten minutes, that first good twenty minutes, and that first good forty-five minutes? What steps did you take that made you successful enough to keep going?
2: I just, you know, the more you write, the better you get at it, mm-hmm. and uh, the more you on stage, uh, the better you get at it. And that's all it was, just. Work, doing the work, and listening to the audience. The audience will tell you uh, everything you need to know. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough to go on stage if you're going to just kind of be uh, blind and deaf to what the audience is is doing. You got to listen. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, there might be some uh, uh, comics that will tell you, you know, there's sometimes the hell with the audience, I got to say this. That's never been. I'm not interested in anything other than getting laughs. Mm. I don't care about anything about getting laughs. So if I think that I'm uh, a sharp political uh, humorist that I have a, 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 a t- and I go up and I do my uh, jokes that are uh, politically oriented with a, a point of view and the audience doesn't laugh, you know what? I stop doing those jokes. Yeah. I'm not as uh, satirical. I'm not the satirist I thought I was. Right. So I, I have no problem with that. You get rid of it uh, uh, you know you, you you get up there and you, you you make fun of people and that doesn't fly stop doing that you're self-deprecating audiences like that guess what that's what I'm gonna do yeah so it's, just, it's just working and paying attention uh-huh. it's, it's remarkable how many people who attempt stand up don't pay attention mm-hmm. to the audience right uh, you know when I uh, get off on one of my uh, uh, lectures about stand standup. Uh, I always tell whoever is unfortunate enough to uh, having to listen to the, my barrage. I tell them, look, I have opinions that I believe in and that I, I I'll state strongly, but you know what? Audiences know more than I do. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you why a joke shouldn't work. If the audience laughs, then the hell with me.
1: Yeah. Yep.
2: So listen to the audience. Yeah. Here's what I tell people. And this is assuming you think funny and you have a comedic instinct. Trust your instinct, listen to the audience. Do what you think is funny, keep what the audience thinks is funny. Mm-hmm. It's not that complicated.
1: I like that advice. Yeah, just yeah.
2: do what you think's funny, keep what the audience thinks is yeah. funny.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's funny that um, when you get into a situation where you got a lot of uh, comics giving you advice you sometimes lose your own point of view uh, especially if you steer towards all these pieces of advice cuz you really got to find yourself up there there's yeah. no there no piece of advice or no other I mean you can get help from other comedians with tags and and how to structure a joke and delivery and stuff like that but when you're up there and you got to be you up there you got to find that part of you that's going to be up there
2: yeah which means you know just writing when it comes to finding your voice in comics, always a lot of new comics, I got to find my voice, write the best jokes you can and be, and, and, and um, when I say the best jokes, a key uh, uh, component of that are honest jokes, jokes that are emotionally uh, honest, mm-hmm. write jokes like that. You're going to, uh, you're going to find a voice without even looking for one. Right. Here's another good bit of advice, and I wish I think it was Mort Saul that uh said this, but uh, this is this this characterizes most of my jokes. What he said was not everything I uh say happened, but everything I say is true. Yeah. And that's that's what I aim for. Right. For an emotional truth uh at the core. So you write jokes that they gotta be funny i tell you what if they're emotionally true also those are going to be great laughs those are going to be laughs with death mm-hmm. but if you write jokes with that have an emotional core and look i talk about getting older i talk about relationships and and and, and women and sex i talk about my alcoholism i'm a recovering alcoholic but mm-hmm. the uh the alcoholic um uh days are uh, a source for uh a lot of material mm-hmm. and they're uh And there's some jokes, a handful of jokes that are just silly jokes and they don't mean anything other than being silly. But most of the jokes have that emotional core. You write jokes like that, you're going to find yourself on stage. You know, you need to be careful who you listen to because there's some very strong personalities that are very strong on stage and very influential. But, uh, uh, you know, you'll find it. There's a comic, I won't mention the name, but he's a very good comic. Uh, when he first started out uh, did bill burr bill burr was his, his uh, uh his hero and you could hear bill burr but the more he got on stage the more he wrote for himself then he just kind of eventually uh uh and happily moved out of that mm-hmm. uh bill burr phase but you know there, there you know there are people i'm sure with uh you can hear mitch hedberg in a lot of comics you used to be able to hear a lot of Bill Hicks. You mm-hmm. hear a lot of Doug Stanhope. So, you know, those real strong personalities will influence you. But if you're supposed to be doing comedy, uh, you'll you, you move out of that. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's inevitable maybe that you're influenced, and it's inevitable if you're meant to be doing stand-up that you'll get out of it
1: right and and the influence is good but when you emulate somebody that has such a uh, first of all a strong point of view and both Hicks and Stanhope started covering territory that was brand new yeah. you know the you know the mental health stuff you know all all that stuff was was fairly fairly new and when you're emulating something like that you you can be really seen as a mimic. I mean, you're just you're just doing their act with different yeah, words. Yeah, and that
2: yeah, and that'll you know, impede your progress. Yeah. And other com- for whatever it's worth, I don't know how important it is to have for any individual to have the approval of your peers, but that won't get that done mm-hmm. if you're just mimicking somebody. Right. Now, if you know, if you're real good at it, uh, you can get over with audiences because mm-hmm. there are audiences that haven't the slightest idea who Doug Stanhope is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So yeah. you can go up and do not, and I'm I'm not saying stealing his act, but you can be doing his attitude. Yeah. And his delivery, and it can be blatantly Doug Stanhope's attitude. And audience, a lot of audiences aren't going to recognize uh, that. Right. So you can get over, but you know, what's the point?
1: Right. Right.
2: Yeah, what's what's the point if you're not going to get up there and be you? What's the point?
1: Uh-huh.
2: Well, so the point is is to get paid, and make a lot of money. So <laughs> there's there's a lot of point. The, the guys like that will will tell me, "Here's the point, dummy." Yeah, I, I get the headline. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm making money. Uh, I got my own podcast. So there's a point to it.
1: Right. Right. But.
2: Yeah. I don't care about those points.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to do you. You got you to gotta yeah, find out what works for you. It's
2: more fun, too. It's more fun. Yeah.
1: So how many years were you into it when you finally said, okay, this is who I am on stage. This is my persona. I'm going to be the easygoing, self-deprecating guy that talks about uh, different weird things in, in his life.
2: Uh, that was always, I guess maybe... I started, I moved from uh, Los Angeles to Houston uh, in 81. And I think under the workshop uh, influence, I started doing more personal stuff as Mm -hmm. opposed to the clever wordplay. Mm -hmm. The workshop uh, in Houston, Texas, it has since closed, uh, where Sam Tennyson started, Bill Mm -hmm. Hicks, uh, Brett Butler, and so many comics that people wouldn't recognize, but they were so good. A lot of them still working, uh, and, uh, very influential in, in my life. And that's probably where I found my footing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The, the, the level of talent and the, 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 uh, the quality was just so high that you, you had to work hard to keep up. So, uh, the workshop, Yeah. Comedy workshop in Houston. That was very important. And that's probably so I would say maybe six, seven years into it. Uh I started to, uh, figure it out. Okay. Okay.
1: So you talked a little bit about your alcoholism and, uh, addiction is something that is very prevalent in the comedy community, mainly because, The access to alcohol is very easy, and the access to all the other good stuff, drugs, and all that stuff can be fairly easy too. How how did that manifest itself into your you know? Was this something that uh, was part of your part of your life before you started stand up, or was it something that kind of manifested while you were uh, getting in the clubs and having the access to the? Beer and whiskey and all that.
2: I was uh, I was a, drinking alcoholically. I was an alcoholic before I got into comedy. Okay. But what happened, Scott, when I first went out to Los Angeles, I had this very, and I remember it clearly, specific lecture. I gave myself, look, you can't afford to be drinking uh, while you're trying to make it as a stand-up. It's too difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you drink, things are out of control, so you can't drink you can't drink you can't drink well as you just pointed out you know at uh, at bars and clubs I just slowly eased back into it and maybe after about two years I was back to my alcoholic ways I fought it for a while mm-hmm. I fought it for a while but uh, it just got the best of me
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, I smoked pot before I got into comedy and smoked a little bit uh, after uh I got into comedy for a while in the early 80s in Houston. Uh, There was a lot of cocaine. I did cocaine for about a year. Mm -hmm. That just scared me to death, and I I stopped doing it. But people in Houston in the 80s, people were just bringing it around. You never had to buy any. Mm -hmm. People that wanted wanted to hang out with comics brought coke. Yeah. And we we partake (laughs) it. partook. Yeah. We partook happily. And I think I remember one night uh after doing some my, my heart got to racing so fast. Mm-hmm. It scared the hell out of me. And I didn't I stopped doing it. Yeah. Kept drinking, but I stopped doing the uh stopped doing the uh cocaine. Ugly so, drugs, Scott.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I I know a little bit too. So uh okay. yeah. Um what what was it that finally um got you to the point where you got into a real recovery.
2: What happened was I had been on the road. This is 1988. Uh, I will have 34 years sober uh, the 26th of this month. What's Mm. what's today? The 19th? Yes. Oh, okay. In a week. Yeah. So you got a week. Yeah. yeah, 34 years. What happened? I got off the road from Florida, uh, like a two week uh, run on the road got back to Houston, uh, immediately started drinking, woke up the next day and I had $20 to my name. I don't know where the hell, now I didn't come back with a lot of money, but I came yeah. back with a lot more than 20. Yeah. I didn't know what had happened to it. I woke up that morning and I was just exhausted, exhausted. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the AA big book says, uh, I was bankrupt. I had nothing.
0: Mm-hmm. I had
2: nothing. I I was tired of calling people. I was a blackout drunk. I was tired of calling people, asking them what happened last night. I was tired of being broke. I was tired of feeling bad in the morning. I was embarrassed by my behavior. I don't don't know that I ever did anything particularly uh, admirable when I was drunk. It was always embarrassing behavior. I was just tired. And I thought to myself, I can't do this anymore. I Uh just cannot do this anymore. And... That day, I went to an AA meeting, and I attended AA. went to uh, quite a few AA meetings in downtown Houston uh, with Bill Hicks, mm-hmm. uh, who had quit. I quit in April of 88. He had quit in February of 88. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I uh, faithfully uh, attended AA for, uh, you know, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm don't go anymore but uh uh for a while it was my life big yeah. help at the beginning big help so that was it i just i just could i woke up i can't do this anymore yeah i can't do it
1: so coming out of this uh, this you know very long stretch of addiction to alcohol and then you come out clean and sober what changed in your act
2: uh well,
1: besides you, having more material.
2: <laughs> well, you, you know, you would think but being a blackout drunk, uh, if, uh, I, I don't have as much material as I probably should. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and again, all the drinking material that I had been doing now was put in the past tense. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I just sharper thinking, you know, there mm-hmm. were, uh, Coming out of it, there were a couple of relationships that uh, led to some uh, material, and uh, let's see, I guess that's 38 when I quit. So now you know I hit 40 soon, and so the the aging thing starting to creep into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sharper, you know, sober is better than drunk. You're thinking, particularly the next morning. That was one of huge problem with being a drunk. wasn't so much. Performing, I got to where I could perform okay with a uh, too many drinks in me, but the next morning, Scott, I just couldn't, couldn't focus to write.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So being clean and sober, now my head's clear. Mm-hmm. I can sit down and actually write. So th- that was probably the biggest right. uh, improvement. Uh, uh, the biggest uh, factor that uh, clean and sober brought about was just clear thinking. Mm-hmm. That's good.
1: That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you've been doing this as long as you have and one of the things I really like about you uh, from from what I've read is that you you still get out and do open mics, you know, every night that you can. And and you're out there with uh, brand new comics and comics that are, you know, at intermediate stages and things like that. Do you feel like You've got an eye for somebody who has it. Who who even even if they're really raw, you can see that talent, and you can um, pinpoint somebody who you think is going to make a good stand-up comic.
2: Here is what I can spot in somebody that's real new. I can tell even if the jokes are badly written or even crudely done, mm-hmm. or the. Uh, b- b- awkwardly perform. I can tell if somebody thinks funny. Now if Mm. they think funny, they got a fighting chance of being a good. Now because you think funny doesn't mean you're going to work hard at it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You may be lazy and just go up there with these funny ideas that aren't fully developed and you can tell her that they have potential, but if you're not going to work at it, I can't tell how hard someone's going to work at it. Mm -hmm. And I can't always tell. I think you can tell if they have a, a talent for performing also, just you can tell if somebody has a stage presence.
0: So, mm-hmm.
2: you know, I've seen, I think of a couple of comics in Houston that I could think of two in specific. When they first started doing it, they would almost mumble their lines. Their head would be down looking at their shoes. And you could see that they thought funny because the jokes, well, I think one of them just was reading them off a piece of paper.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you could tell they thought funny because the jokes, reflected that but they just man but you know over time they just got more and more comfortable mm-hmm. being on stage and they both the two i'm thinking of actually there's a third i haven't seen him in a while i hope he's uh has it uh continued to get better but now they're good performers
0: mm-hmm.
2: performers but so you can't always or i'll say this i can't always tell if somebody's gonna because there are people that that uh start off looking at their shoes and that's they never get over that yeah (laughs) sometimes you sometimes some people do yeah but you could tell right away that both uh both those uh both those young men thought funny
1: yeah yeah now i want to devote the rest of our talk to this kickstarter that uh slade started for you And, and and let's Let's talk about how that came about and what you're working towards and, you know, what the, the perfect outcome would be for you. So let's, first of all, how, how, how did you meet Slade, first of all?
2: Well, I know, I, I probably met Slade, I don't know, was I still, was it that long ago? Was I still drinking? I can't remember. But he had a club, he's from Beaumont, Texas. He had a real nice room mm-hmm. in Beaumont that I played one time. And that's when I first met him. And then at some point he moved to Houston and became coming, uh, became part of the, uh, the uh, uh, comedy community, mm-hmm. uh, you know, performing at this gig and that gig. And uh, we work together quite often. So we've known each other probably at least 20 years. So I've been, yeah, I wasn't drinking when I first met him, but we've known each other at least 20 years. One day on the, uh, Houston comedy, Facebook page. I wondered, uh, I posed a question, uh, what would it take? Cause I decided I wanted to film my act. I wanted my act to, you know, I, I, uh, I don't anticipate Netflix, uh, uh, giving me a call anytime soon. I'm <laughs> 72 years old. If, if what, and not that, you know, history demands that my act be put on film, uh-huh. but I've been doing it 40 years. I have a certain level of achievement. Uh, both in writing and performing and uh, I, I, you know, I just would like to uh, have it on film and I uh, wondered on the page, how do you go about this? Mm -hmm. Do I need to, can I, should I start a GoFundMe page in order to raise money to do it? And how much money would I need? Well, Slade immediately, I think, you know, that, that afternoon, that morning, whenever I posted, he immediately uh, got in contact with me and said, I want to, I want to do this with you and for you.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: he started, he started putting it together. He put together the kickstart. He will be producing and directing the special. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, it was, a. Uh, and he's really been the force behind it. Cause I might, you know, I might still be asking questions without <laughs> moving anywhere. I mean, that's just, that's, that's my nature. Yeah. Uh, uh so yeah, that's why they did it, it. It's not GoFundMe; it's Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, and Slade did a spreadsheet and decided, and we want the best venue, the best equipment, the best crew. Uh, uh, and he decided twenty-six thousand would get the job done. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So we started a Kickstarter. I guess it's been going a month now. We got thirteen days left. Uh, two weeks minus a day left. And I guess we're sitting at about nineteen thousand seven, nineteen thousand seven, I think, last time I looked. So we got uh, something less than something less than uh, nine thousand, less than seven thousand to uh, to go in thirteen days. Uh, So you can uh, the deal is you can go to Kickstarter type in my name, Andy Huggins, boom, mm-hmm. it pops up. And there's certain kind of uh, perks that go along with a donation, depending uh, uh, on how much you uh, donate. And I don't. Yeah, donate. I'm
1: seeing, uh, let me see. So just 25 bucks gives you access to the live stream premiere, 50 bucks. You get your name in the credits and a digital copy of the film, a hundred bucks get a hand signed thank you from Andy and a thousand bucks makes you an associate producer and you get all kinds of good stuff. So yeah. lots of, lots of good things just for, uh, helping out and, yeah. uh, and, uh, a relatively, uh, low cost to get in. Uh, even, even at the, um, $25 level, you get something nice.
2: Yeah. And it all helps. It all helps. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, some people, at the risk of sounding pompous, some people have referred to it as kind of like a legacy uh, film, and, mm-hmm. and maybe so, maybe not. But I, you know, it's it's part ego and part, you know, not just pride in myself, but pride in the fact that I was a stand-up com, pride in stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
2: it, it 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 has meant everything to me, and I would like to, and I'm I'm, I'm good at it, mm-hmm. and I would just like to get it on. It'd be cool,
1: yeah.
2: it It'd just be cool, particularly if we get the money and it's first class all the way because uh, Slade will make sure of that, right? Uh, no doubt about it.
1: Now, you've had a month to think about this since the Kickstarter got started, even you know, e- even though it was kind of a whirlwind thing just from a post. Have you thought about the uh, how your act is going to be structured and what you what you want in in the uh, special and all that kind of stuff.
2: Well, there are a couple of things. It's going to be my act. It's going to be structured like uh, I structure any. I'm going to start where I usually start and end where I usually end. Mm-hmm. But and I've been talking to Slade. There are a couple of ideas. It'll be a little different.
1: It'll
2: mm-hmm. be a little different. That uh, break it up and it's it'd be fun. So, uh, yeah, we've given some thought to to, to exactly uh, w- what it all will entail. Uh-huh. So we're going to have fun. We're going to have fun doing it, too. Right,
1: right. Now, let's pretend like I'm a brand-new comic. Let's Let's say I've been doing it for a year. Let's say I'm a, a comedian that's been doing it for a year, and you see me, and— I'm rough, but you see, you see some potential there. What advice would you give me to first off uh, tell me I'm worth it um, to keep going down this path, but I need to get better at it. What, how, how do you give the good and and the bad and and still um, and encourage a comedian to keep doing it?
2: Well, if, if I, I would if I would tell the, the, uh, the, the, young person, Hey, you think funny. And that's the highest compliment I can pay anybody. And I hope the person would recognize that I'm paying them, a, uh, an important compliment. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is just, you know, write Every day, write Every day. And, uh, you know, a lot of comics, uh, they say they write on stage. Okay. If that's where you do it, uh, then what about those days when you're not on stage? Well, what happens then. Write every day. Um, Again, another quote that I can't pinpoint the author, but this is so true. This person said, and I think he was a novelist, but -hmm. he said, you got to write every day because most of what you write is going to be crap and you just got to get the crap out of your system. Uh I absolutely believe that. I have more than a few days where I'll write nothing but crap, but I kind of feel like I got something done because I got the crap out of my system. So you know, whatever your process is for writing, you, you do it first thing in the morning, you, 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 you do it after a show, uh, you, you do it every day, you go down to the coffee shop at two and, and do whatever the, have a routine. Um, uh, I, well, everybody's different. I just, I can't, you know, I can't function haphazardly. I can't say, well, I'll do it when I do it. Mm-hmm. No, I'm going to do it at this hour and I'm, I'm going to try to accomplish this much. Just do it every day. And then of course, get on stage as often as possible. Mm-hmm. And then we're back to that other bit of advice and then listen to the audience.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Listen. To, and another thing I tell people is be patient. You're not going to get good real in a hurry.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You're not going to get good by next Thursday. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. The act develops slowly and the career develops slowly and people get very impatient, yeah. get very impatient. They think they're, they, they're, they think they're uh, feature acts when they're not ready to do 30 minutes. And they, they think they're headliners when they're not even ready to do feature act yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, I say a lot, I think it may be a lot of uh, people think that being a headliner means being on stage for 45 minutes, being willing to be well, no, you got to be on stage consistently getting last for 45 minutes. It's uh, a friend of mine said, it's one thing that doing 45 isn't the same thing as having 45. Mm-hmm. You got to have it before you can headline. But people get impatient, and they, you know, and it's understandable. that You get more money to headline. So you yeah. start representing yourself as a headliner. But boy, it's brutal. Yeah. Brutal. <laughs> Really, and, and the audience for the club manager and for yourself.
1: Yeah, when you when you think you got that forty five and it turns out you only got twenty, it's uh, yeah. it's it makes for a rough night and uh, oh,
2: for everybody. Yeah, for everybody.
1: <laughs> yeah. What wow. do you think? Can you look back and pinpoint the greatest moment you had on stage?
2: Um. I tell you what America's got talent was great for mm-hmm. a couple of reasons. Not, uh, one of which I, I did very well, um, mm-hmm. in front of a big audience, uh, did very well. And, uh, but what made it great was how relaxed I was.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm
2: usually very, uh, not tense, but anxious before going on. Mm-hmm. But there's a, uh, if you watch the tape of me on America, there's in fact, it's in the video that Slade made for the Kickstarter. There's a shot of me, uh, uh, approaching the, uh, microphone. I take the mic out of the stand. There's such a relaxed expression on my face.
1: Yeah, there really I is. Watch, yeah.
2: Yeah. I don't watch that tape too often. I will watch that moment because I tell myself, uh, Andy, that's how you got to be before every show. I don't, I don't care if it's a open mic or featuring at the improv or headlining wherever. That's that's the attitude you want. So that was a great night for that reason. The fact that I, I stayed relaxed throughout the whole performance, even though I'm looking at so many people and I got four people that are going to judge me yeah. in front of the whole country. They're going to judge me. Uh-huh. Uh, and that can be unnerving if you let it get into your head. But for a couple of reasons, one of them being, I think, psychologically, uh, I was telling myself, hey, this is what you ought to be doing. Yeah. This, this is this is, this is is a moment. This is what you ought to be doing. Uh-huh. But uh, now the irony is I prefer, I, I like playing, in, I played in uh, to audiences that size a couple of times. But you know what? I prefer the 80-seat room. Yeah. The intimate ADC. Yeah. It weren't for the money. I do rooms like that for the, the rest of my life. Right. Right. Yeah. But for, and there's any one of a number of great shows that have taken place there. I can think of so many just coming rushing to my head. I, in, in a place, there's a great room in Houston called, um, Rudyard's, uh, that uh, I play every Monday night, and then on other nights as well, depending on what's going on. Uh-huh. So many great shows here that uh, just so much fun and so pleasing. And another great room called the Box that is in Houston. Another small room. Yeah. But you know, why not America's Got Talent is the greatest moment. Yeah, it's on national TV.
1: Yeah. And I watched I watched the tape several times before we started today, and that is one of the things that really struck me was that first moment when you took the mic it wasn't it wasn't a cocky look it wasn't like hey i deserve to be up here it was it was a um it was it, it was a look of I've been doing, I've been doing this for a while, but I really want to make you guys laugh. And, and it it just, I, I really, I I respected that because I think if it would have been anything else, if you would have looked scared or if you would have looked too cocky, like you, you, you really, um, you really thought you were going to take this whole thing and you were actually too good for it. I think both of those ways would have made the whole act different and not as funny
2: and no, yeah, I, I looked like I belonged. Yeah. yeah, I looked like, and yeah. I was real comfortable belonging. So yeah. like I said, I look at that every once in a while just to remind myself that needs to be my attitude uh, uh, before every show.
1: Yeah. Well, I think I'm going to look I, at it. I
2: I, yeah, I think I hit it most nights.
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to look at it every time I get up. So uh, yeah. yeah, you'll be an inspiration to me very good so um I want to bring this back around to the Kickstarter very easy to get to you can either go to kickstarter.com and type in Andy Huggins you can go to Google and type in Andy Huggins Gix Kickstarter and it's the first uh, first uh, link on the page uh, I've got this here and it'll be in the show notes the dot forward slash andy will take you right to his kickstarter page and for 25 bucks you can help somebody who deserves to have a special get a special so uh, i really appreciate uh, we, we did this kind of on short notice because i saw your story and i really wanted to uh help you out in any way i could and uh i appreciate you doing it on short notice and i think there's been a wealth of information shared today and i really appreciate it andy
2: well i enjoyed myself like i say we you know with me you could have uh... Kept me here for another four hours. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have a uh, a standing offer to any comic, young comic in Houston. Uh, buy me breakfast, and I'll talk comedy with you. Uh-huh. I'll answer any questions you have. I just, I just love it. And I say that as I, I mentioned earlier. Uh, I, I don't think I'm the fine. Nothing I say ought to be written in stone. I don't think I'm a genius or that. Um, but I do know some things. And I, 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 will say it with enthusiasm and, uh, you know, take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can't hurt my feelings if you leave it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's comedy. It's subjective. It's art.
1: Yeah. It it certainly is. Everybody's different. Yeah.
2: Everybody's different. And the only thing I won't argue with is the audience laughing. That's, yeah, that's,
1: that's yeah. the final word. Yeah, I, it's funny what, what you're saying is very close to my, my first guest was Tom Dreesen. And oh, he yeah. every time a conversation comes up about a certain type of humor, like, say, you're super dirty or you're super political, you know, the only thing Tom says is, is it's funny. Yeah. And if, really. it, if, if it's funny, you can do whatever you want, but if it's not funny, you're going to fall on your face no matter what.
2: Yeah. 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 And you know what? It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to make me laugh. If the audience laughs, yeah. Yeah. that's fine. I, you know, it, it, the fact that I don't laugh at any given comic or any given bit or any given joke, I'm just one person. Yeah. Uh, uh, what does the audience what does the audience think?
1: Yeah, well, I tell you what, this has been very enlightening, and I I really appreciate you being on the show. And folks, make sure you go to the show notes and click on the link for Andy's Kickstarter. Let's let's get him off strong and get him enough money to get the special going, and maybe a little bit more so that him and Slade can have dinner afterwards. So
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> but. I'm i'm low maintenance it wouldn't be a big dinner yeah (laughs) bacon and eggs and some grits
1: yeah well this is great i really i really appreciate you being on the show andy and i and and i I really hope you get up over the top on that
2: thank you very much